Amen. Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters. Uh, very Merry Christmas to each one of you, and we are very glad to see you all here. This morning, in light of Christmas, we will be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me, and please stand as I read from God's Word. Philippians 2, chapters 1 to 11. The Word of God says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, pastor and artist named Terry, uh, Thomas Terry founded a creative collective named Humble Beast several years ago. He worked with Christians who made it their ambition to make and use music and rap and art to the glory of God. Yet several years later, after Thomas's departure from his creative collective Humble Beast, he explained how artists would often fall and become ensnared by self-promotion and the celebrity culture that they were so part of. And it seems that as some of these artists became more well-known, as they were more involved and entrenched in self-promotion and fame, they forgot what it was like to be a regular person. They forgot or they were surprised about the fact that they too were regular Christians like everyone else, they, that they too needed to serve others too. Or that when they got home from touring the country, they had to do laundry or they had to take out the garbage. Ironically, in these Christian artists' endeavor to glorify God and make Him known, they instead were sucked into the glory of man and somewhere along the lines, they forgot what it meant to be humble themselves. If some of these artists were from a label called Humble Beast, then it would be very ironic to not be humble. To call yourself humble, to have the name humble, yet in reality to be selfish, proud, and self-centered is ironic. However, it's, not, it's always ironic, brothers and sisters, when a Christian is proud. It's always ironic when a Christian is filled with selfish ambition and is not humble. It's not because they're under a label or called a humble beast, but because they are under a humble savior. This Christmas, we can remember that Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of humility. An example of God who emptied himself, lowered himself as a servant, even though he was the glorious Lord of lords, King of kings. And therefore, for Christians, for his people, to be proud and to be conceited is selfish and ironic. It's unchristian in nature. 
Well, Paul, in our passage this morning, is writing to this beloved Philippian church, whom he established about 10 years prior to writing this letter. This letter is regarded as a letter of Christian friendship, where Paul demonstrates his deep care for his friends and a deep care for their spiritual life. The Philippians were in a very evil region of the world, located in modern-day Greece, living under the power of the evil Roman Empire at that time, which was very anti-Christian and pro-emperor. And these Christians, as citizens of heaven, were suffering for their faith. They faced opposition and were in danger of disunity within the church. Selfish ambition, conceit, and disagreement were also creeping in to this young congregation. And so Paul writes to this, Christ, to this Christian church, to his Christian friends, and as chapter 127 earlier on note, notes, Paul wanted them to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, to stand firm as one, to strive for the gospel. And one way he does this, one way he exhorts them, is by telling them to be humble. Not humble like this world, who knows nothing about true humility, but true humility comes from Christ. Be humble like Christ. Humility is a mark of a heavenly citizen, of a true Christian. So brothers and sisters, do you want an ultimate and true example of humility? Well, consider Christmas and what it highlights. Christ who humbled himself, who left his glorious throne to be born in a manger as a baby. Well, this morning and this Christmas, I want us to see the humble Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want us to be exhorted towards imitating him in humility. So let's consider a couple truths this Christmas and some implications for you. This Christmas, know that humility is essential, that humility is exemplified, and that humility is exalted. First, this Christmas, understand that humility is essential. And that brings us to verses 1 to 4. To think of the Christmas story, but to be conceited again and to be selfish as a Christian is, again, wrong and ironic. The term conceited Christian should be an oxymoron. It's contradictory, especially in light of our humble Savior. Well, this is true for us, and this was true for the Philippian church, and indeed, Paul didn't want this church to sink into pride or to be a church divided because of their self-interest. Yet in verse 1, we can see the reasons or the realities for why they had hope as believers to not completely fall into this gospel error. In verse 1, we see the word if, and normally, when we see the word, the, the, this word, we think of a conditional clause. That something is dependent on something else. But here, Paul isn't questioning or wondering if they have encouragement in Christ or if they have comfort from love or if they have participation in the Spirit or affection and sympathy. Rather, he is actually stating a reality. Paul, in other words, could be saying, since you have encouragement from Christ, since you have comfort, since you have participation in the Spirit, etc., etc., Paul knows that these believers are saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's stating realities now. For example, Philippians 1.67 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you from, uh, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. This is what he says about the Philippian believers. He knew that they were saved. And as saved believers, Paul in verse one first states that they have encouragement in Christ and comfort from love. The Philippians were suffering for the faith. Paul himself was in jail for his faith at, a time, at the time of writing this letter. 
But indeed, Paul points out that they have comfort in Christ and comfort or solace from God's love. After all, they are saved and redeemed by Christ. And therefore, no suffering can take away their hope. No suffering can take away their hope of eternity. Several verses before, Paul says himself that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Though he was suffering, he knew that being on earth meant fruitful labor still. He knew that it meant gospel advancement. He, it meant knowing the surpassing worth of Christ, knowing his sweet fellowship even through the loss of all things on earth. For the Christian, no amount of suffering is too great for the comfort that is available in Christ. No one can take away our heavenly citizenship. No one can take away our sweet fellowship from Christ. And furthermore, Paul states that these believers participate in the Spirit. They can know ultimate unity because the same Spirit brought them to Christ and opened their eyes. They all partake and fellowship with the same Holy Spirit. They all have the same Spirit. There's no room for one-upmanship in the Spirit of Christ. And lastly, indeed, in the Lord and even within the Christian community, the Philippian believers knew affection and sympathy as well. Another word for sympathy here can be mercy. They know God's affection. They know God's mercy upon their lives. God has sustained them for the past decade, and He will sustain them for the rest of their lives. And more than that, they showed mercy and affection even, even to Paul as they reached out to him in his struggle and supported him with a monetary gift. These Philippians have all that they need as redeemed people to thrive as a Christian community. And so Paul says to them in verse 2, therefore, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Of course, Paul had all he needed for joy in the Lord. He had Christ. He knew Christ intimately as his Savior. He longed to be with Christ at death even, because that would be gain for him to be in the Lord's full presence. But you see, as others know, Paul's life was so bound up with the Philippians and he loved and he cared for them as his dear friends. And their spiritual well-being brought him joy. And their spiritual disobedience, we can assume, hurt him as well. He had a true pastoral heart. And he cared for his friends who were in danger of some disunity. So he says here, complete my joy. Obedience and unity was essential for Paul. And as redeemed Christian. Christians, Paul first tells them to complete his joy by being of the same mind. Paul didn't want a superficial unity among the Philippians, but a unity even from the mind, from within, to have a holistic unity. He desired for his people to agree in the Lord, to have the same mindset towards one another. And ultimately, the mindset Paul wanted for them, as we will see later, is the mindset that Christ had. A humble mindset, a Christian mindset, a Christian disposition towards one another. How do you think about or how do you treat, how do you view others within the church? Is it with affection? Is it with love? Is it with compassion? The same mindset doesn't mean that you need to agree with everyone on everything, on every issue. But it does mean that your disposition is one of love towards your brothers and sisters. That you have a common way of thinking and a common will in Christ to be compassionate, understanding, and unified. And next, Paul even says in verse 2, having the same love. In order for Christians to agree in the Lord, for Christians to have harmony among, harmony among one another, they need a common love for one another as well. 
especially as experienced first from God. And furthermore, Paul desires them to be in full accord and of one mind. One can translate this uh, in full accord as united in soul or united in spirit. Paul desired, as one author says, inner harmony, to be united in soul and mind from deep within, be fully united. You know, not every one of you may vote for the same president. Not all of you may have the same view on social issues or parenting. But as Christians, you can all be united in the Lord. You can all have a loving, humble disposition towards one another. And you can all view each other in a kind light. You can work together, love each other, pursue Christ together, and have all your thoughts and decisions be made through the lens of the gospel. We all think differently, but we can all have the same Christian mindset, the same Christian disposition towards one another. They consider the type of mindset and Christian disposition Paul desired for his church to have now. In verse 3, he highlights a mindset and character of humility. Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But what does a unified church look like? What must it have? Well, it must have Christians who are humble to the core. Christians who have been so transformed that they fight against thinking and doing things with selfish ambition and pride. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, pride was actually praised. To be humble was seen as weakness, but not so for Christians. Humility is a true mark of a Christian because that's how our Savior lived. Notice, Paul says to do nothing with selfish ambition or conceit. That includes working, playing, raising your kids, serving in ministry, talking about your accomplishments, talking about yourself. In all these things, your heart matters. And it's not to be done with a drop of pride or selfish ambition. Not to make yourself look great or to put others down. The goal is not to outdo others, but instead, as Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Brothers and sisters, you must understand that you are not the center of the world. This is not a call to think badly about yourself, of course, or to, have, uh, or to think lowly of yourself or to have no self-esteem. No, but it is a call to think of other people, isn't it? We ought to think well of others. We ought to value others. This is a call to love others. This ought to be our Christian disposition, considering others. Humility is a mindset Paul is calling us to in thinking that our brothers and sisters are actually great. They are created in God's image. They are valuable as a child of God. And therefore, we can treat them as if they are more significant than even ourselves. Have you had a disagreement with somebody recently? Have you been a little hurt by someone in the church after your disagreement? Well, instead of first thinking of yourself as a victim and how hurt you personally may be, consider how your words may have actually hurt the other person first. Be first bothered not about how hurt you are, but about how you've hurt your dear brother or sister in Christ. Count them and their feelings as more significant than your own. Did someone get a promotion over you at work? Did someone in this church get a job that you didn't get but wanted? Well, don't feel sorry for yourself, but celebrate and rejoice over your dear brother or sister. They are valuable too. They are good, a good fit for this job too. Think highly of them and consider how God can use that other brother or sister in this position in amazing ways. 
The same is true in ministry. Does someone get to serve and take on roles you wish you could have? Well, consider them again as more significant than yourself. Consider how they can build up God's kingdom in great ways. Be happy for them. Consider their talents and gifts to serve the church. Has someone gotten married before you? Has someone had a child before you? Even though you, you've been longing for, the, for those things as well. Well, that's hard. I don't deny it. But consider how that brother or sister is worthy too of God's blessing upon their lives. How they can be great parents and a great wife or husband. Love them with the love that God has for you. Desire the best for your brothers and sisters. Count them as valuable and significant. But get this, Paul also says in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Sometimes we try to impose our interests and our desires upon others, but this passage doesn't mean we should try to care for others based on how we think they want to be cared for, but we ought to actually know what other people need. We need to know what other people desire and of their interests as well. Well, to do this, you need to know your brothers and sisters, don't you? You need to understand what your brother and your sister desires, what, what their interests are. Humility means we take our eyes off of ourselves as the center of the world, and it means thinking more about others. It means considering others. It means valuing and loving others. How can extroverts who love to be the center of attention do this? Well, they can practice holding their tongue and leaving some room for others to talk and express themselves, to consider others and how they may have lots to say as well. For introverts who get tired of people and who complain about others and how tired people make them, well, in humility, you can count it a joy to be with others. Consider the lives and conversations others have with you as important as well. More important than your desire for rest and comfort. Their words and energy are significant too. Don't run off for selfish reasons. And lastly, this Christmas season, during a season of materialistic consumerism and entitlement, Remember that you don't ultimately deserve anything but God's judgment upon your life. You aren't more worthy of owning a home than others. You are not more deserving of a job, promotion. Your family and possessions are not more significant and are not more beautiful than others. Your time is not more important than others. So cultivate a spirit of humility. Put away selfish ambition and pride. Love your brothers and sisters who are valuable and made in the image of God. This ought to be part of your heart and Christian mindset towards others. This Christmas, how can we really pursue true humility as God's redeemed people? Well, there's no rocket science. There's no secret formula. But it's by looking to Christ as our great example, our great model. Christmas is all about our humble Savior. Christmas is not about gifts. It's not about family. It's not about snow. It's not about food and festivities. It's about the humble Lord Jesus Christ who came to earth as a baby to die for our sins, to give us life. So by God's grace, with the help of the Spirit, by looking to Christ's example, we can indeed be a humble people that considers the interests of others above ourselves, above above our own. If there's a season to be humble, a season to fight against our entitlement, it's the Christmas season. This Christmas, consider this truth about Christ. Consider how humility now is exemplified. Humility is exemplified in verses 5 to 7. 
as we've gone through, we as God's redeemed are to be of the same mind. We are to have the same love. We are to be united and to do nothing from selfish ambition, to be humble and to consider the interests of others. But as verse 5 shows, this is the mind Paul desires us to have, a mind we can indeed have in Christ. It's not an unattainable mind. Christ, again, is our great example to imitate for humility. And now Paul expands on Christ's example and mindset. In verse 6, Paul zeroes in on Christ, who he says was in the form of God. Indeed, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, was and is God. He has no beginning. He was with God in creation. And he was and he is truly God. The word form here doesn't mean some sort of similarity to God or a type of God. No. Form here, as one writer says, is the true and exact nature of something, possessing all the characteristics and qualities of something. And in this case, of God. Or to summarize others, form is a true express expression of a given reality, namely of being God here. So when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he's really saying that Jesus, from time eternal, was God. He possessed all the characteristics of God. He displayed himself as God, for he was indeed very much God. 100% God, infinitely glorious, infinitely majestic and powerful. This was Jesus before he came to earth. This is the truth that Paul points us to. And not only this, but the greater point that Paul brings forth is not Jesus' divinity alone, but of how he as the divine second person of the Trinity, as verse 6 says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. As others understand, this equality explains what it meant for Jesus to be in the form of God. In reality, Jesus was God, and he was always equal to God the Father. It wasn't that he was lacking equality and that he needed to seize it. He wasn't a lesser being. He wasn't less God in eternity. But the amazing truth here is that Jesus Christ, who was indeed equal with God the Father, did not count this equality with God a thing to be grasped. He chose not to use his equal status with God to his own advantage, as the NIV translates. He didn't seize, he didn't grasp, he didn't cling to what he already was to his advantage. He didn't exploit his status over us. For example, North Korean dictator and leader Kim Jong-un is an example of someone who has used his position held tightly to his high position and to his uh, status to his own advantage. It's no secret that many citizens in North Korea are starving. The citizens of this country are desperately poor and mistreated, yet on the flip side, Kim Jong-un is reported to be a man who indulges in European food and in alcohol. He enjoys whiskey and Parma ham from Italy. He, unlike his citizens, is living the high life. He continues to grasp and cling on to his high status status and privilege, and he uses it to his advantage to remain rich, to remain powerful, to feed his full belly. He uses his power and position for himself to even exploit his own people to gain from them. But you see, Jesus Christ did the very opposite. 
Jesus Christ didn't sit back on his throne uh, as his people fell into grave sin and plunged into eternal hell. He didn't hold tightly to his kingly position in heaven, which was rightfully already his. He didn't hold tightly to his equal status with God the Father and demand worship from his people. He didn't choose to ignore his people from his position of power. He didn't ignore the need to sympathize and care for them. No, he did the opposite. He decided to forego his heavenly glory and status. He decided to become and live like the very people whom he is Lord over. And this is an amazing truth. Paul continues and he says that Jesus, as God, didn't cling to this high equal status with God to his own advantage, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. As one author notes, Christ had a mindset of service here. This is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. That's how he emptied himself. That's how he gave up his heavenly prestige and status. We need, of course, to be careful here. He didn't empty himself of his divinity or empty himself of anything specific, but simply he took the form of a servant. He became a human. That's how Christ emptied himself or poured himself out. He performed the duties of a slave, as others say. He really took on the characteristics and qualities of a servant. Jesus was born in a lowly place, laid in a manger, a place for animals. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus met the needs of others. Jesus healed the sick and the blind. Jesus obeyed his human parents. Jesus obeyed the heavenly, his heavenly uh, Father perfectly. Jesus lived his earthly life for others. And Jesus, as we see in a moment, even gave his life for others. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how Jesus emptied himself as a servant, by taking the form of a servant, a life of service. And furthermore, verse 7 says, he, that is Jesus, was born in the likeness of man. What does being born in the likeness of, of men mean? Well, Does it mean that he wasn't really a human? No, he was. Jesus Christ really did take on a form of a servant, which also meant he really took on flesh. He emptied himself. He humbled himself by becoming one of us. But as others know, he was unique in that he was also God incarnate. He never gave up his divinity. While there's mystery here, I think we can understand that Jesus lowered himself in an infinite way. He condescended, came down to our level from his high, glorious heavenly throne. And it was a great and infinite condescension uh, to understand. Jesus really took on flesh. He really was 100% human. He had to use the toilet like all of us. He experienced sadness, pain, loss, and futility in this fallen world, just like we did. Yet... He did all of this without sinning, as we do. He did all of this without grumbling or sinfully complaining. He did this without giving into temptation. And that's something unique only to the God-man, Jesus Christ. And I believe this is part of what it means for Jesus to be born in the likeness of men. Jesus was indeed born into this world as a human baby. Jesus really did give up certain privileges and status, but he was a unique human being. Different from us, in a sense, because he never gave up his divinity. He never gave up his equal standing with God in the sense that he was always God in nature and God in essence as well. So indeed, Jesus Christ did take on the form of a servant. He did get birthed into this world from the Virgin Mary. And as verse 7 says, 
being found in human form, he humbled himself. As God in the flesh, as the unique Son of God, as a unique God-man, Jesus truly did humble himself. And now we need to understand that the apex of his humility was his death. Christmas, brothers and sisters, is ultimately meaningless if Jesus simply came as a baby in a manger and nothing else. The marvelous truth of Christmas includes the fact that Jesus came as a baby in a manger. Yes, it does mean that he gave up his glorious throne for a time in heaven. Yes, but he did this to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is where Jesus' humility shines brightest. When the God of glory not only condescended to earth as a lowly baby, but he also was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, Paul says. Many people think Jesus just came to be a good teacher, to be another wise prophet, to be a good example, but no, that's not it. He came and he humbled himself to the point of death. He knew his people were in trouble. He knew we were all deserving of death for our sin, and he knew only he could pay for our sin. Only he could, he could take the cup of wrath. Only he could be the perfect sacrifice on behalf of humanity as a man himself. And so his ultimate act of humble service was going willingly to the cross. He was obedient to God the Father, but he also chose to lay down his life, didn't he? He chose to do this for you. He chose to sacrifice for you. Brothers and sisters, no Christmas story is complete unless you remember Christ's humility, especially displayed by going to the cross to die for your sin. The King of glory had it all. Glory, majesty, infinite power. Yet he gave up much of his privilege. He didn't hold fast to his throne. He didn't lord his privilege and glory over his people. But instead, he died a sinner's death to save his people. In other words, Jesus counted us as significant, didn't he? Jesus looked not only to his own interests, but to our interests. Yet in this case, he truly had our best interests in mind. Salvation, Forgiveness of sin, everlasting life, that's what God considered on our behalf. When we sin against our God, God in his love sent his eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, to pay for our sin. And Jesus Christ was humble enough to accept this call. He was humble enough to think of us over his own interests. He counted us as significant people, and he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and he chose to serve his people. He lived a perfect life. He humbled himself. He lowered himself. He died a sinner's death on a cross, and he paid for our sin. He took God's wrath and the punishment we deserve to pay for And he was humiliated and murdered for us. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, did this for you and me. He thought of us. He served us instead of being selfish and conceited. That's humility. That's love. That's why Christmas is good news. Humility doesn't end with the birth of Christ, but it's highlighting, highlighting his death on the cross for his people as well. This Christmas, I encourage you to consider the humility and sacrifice of Christ. I encourage you to take your eyes off of yourself and your entitlement and to look at Christ who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's no greater humility. There's no greater love. There's no greater truth to comfort your hearts with this season. 
And as you consider Christ and His love for you, consider others above yourself. Consider their interests, not just your own. Be generous with your time. Be eager to serve others. Be eager to listen to others. Be okay with not getting everything you want because you have everything in Christ. Put away self-pity since that's a form of pride. You're not too great to serve your husband or wife. You're not too great to to have to work on Christmas Day or to give others a day off. You're not too great to serve the church. You're not too great to say sorry to your spouse or friend first or to apologize to your child when you've wronged them. You're not too great to put yourself in an awkward situation in order to share the gospel with a loved one. You're not too great to think of others this season and in every season. For Christ thought of you and served you by giving his life. That's the true Christmas spirit, isn't it? It's not about eggnog. It's not about mistletoe or snow. It's about Jesus Christ. Well, for those of you in this room who may not be Christians, you might be thinking humility, the cross, Jesus dying, taking the form of a servant, the call to be humble. It's all kind of negative. It seems so self-deprecating. Well, hopefully none of you are thinking that since humility The humility that we've been talking about so far is not meant to be self-deprecating. It's not meant to be a call to undervalue yourself. That's not it. Rather, humility in this context is of great value. It preserves unity. It considers others as important and significant. And furthermore, the humility of Christ even led to the salvation of many. And as we come to the end of our passage in verses 9 to 11, we can be reminded this Christmas season that Jesus Christ did indeed humble himself and he took on the form of a servant and also that his humility led to his exaltation. In fact, humility is actually the path to glory. Humility isn't an end in and of itself. We don't be humble just to be humble, but Christian humility leads to exaltation. Consider James 4.10, which says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Luke 14, 11 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In fact, humbling ourselves before God is what we all ought to do to be with God. We need to know of our own moral lowliness, of our need for Him. We need to acknowledge our helpless and sinful state and depend on Him. To reject humility is to reject God. But make no mistake, humility again leads to exaltation. And this is what we see in verses 9 to 11, specifically in Christ. Humility is exalted. Humility is exalted. You see, Christ was the ultimate example and model of humility. And rightfully and amazingly so, Paul says in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Christ came, Christ came as a humble baby. He humbled himself to serve us, to die on the cross, which was the ultimate form of humiliation. But again, make no mistake, Christ was and is honored for his, for his obedience and humility. Paul says that God has highly exalted Christ. The word exalted here in this context means that God has raised Christ to the highest of heights, to the highest point of honor, to the highest possible degree. This exaltation of Christ points to Christ's vindication and to God's approval over Christ and his life, over his work and humility. In other words, God was saying to Christ that he approves of all that he has done. Christ was not foolish for being humble. He was not disowned by God the Father for being a servant. 
But he was right. He was justified. He was honored to the highest point. He was marked by God's approval, given the name above every name. However, what name is Jesus given by God the Father? Well, to answer this question, it's important to to consider the Old Testament. And very briefly, we can consider Isaiah 45, 22 to 23, which we see God say, uh, God, uh, God who is Yahweh himself say this. Isaiah 45, 22 to 23 says this. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. And he says this. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. If this isn't clear, in verse 10 of our passage in Philippians, Paul here is quoting from Isaiah and pointing his readers to Yahweh, to whom every knee shall bow. Yet in our passage, Paul says that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Many understand that Lord here is the name being bestowed on Christ. Lord, however, in the Greek is equivalent to the Hebrew name for Yahweh. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is being bestowed the title Yahweh, that is God, by God himself. Jesus Christ is no longer a lowly suffering Messiah, but he is the exalted Lord, post-death and resurrection. This is the Christ we must also think about this Christmas. This Lord Jesus who is worthy of all our worship, this Lord who is indeed God. The Philippians and Christians in general can take comfort in these truths. And as others know, if Christ is honored by God for his humility and obedience, then Christians, in the end, can also expect to be honored for their obedience as well. Humility is the pathway to honor and exaltation. Now, if we return to verse 10, we can see the purpose or the result of this exaltation. And it's that every knee should bow at the highly exalted name of Jesus one day. If Jesus is exalted by God to the greatest degree, if he is the risen Lord God, then naturally one day everyone will recognize his greatness. Everyone will give homage to Christ as the Lord. Everyone, heavenly beings, those on earth, and even those who have already died will, as Paul says, bow at the name of Jesus and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is God. It's only right. It's only natural. And get this, this exaltation and honoring of Christ will be to the glory of God the Father as well. None of this is by mistake. All of it will be to the glory, to the honor of God the Father. After all, as John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Christmas is all about God who sent his Son into the world. God in Christ gets all the credit, all the glory. In the end, believers will confess Christ and glorify the triune God of the Bible. And in the end, even unbelievers will confess Christ as Lord, though not as their personal Savior, but they will give glory to God nonetheless. No one, even those who hated and despised this humble Christ, will escape the truth of Christ. You know, sometimes when I cross the border and go to the U.S. Border Patrol office, I see in the office these picture frames of all the U.S. presidents. No doubt, not every U.S. officer voted for those presidents, but regardless of their vote, they still had to acknowledge the truth of who the president was. Officers still need to salute and honor their president. Well, in a greater way, not everyone will love or adore Jesus Christ. Many will hate him and remain in their rebellion against him in hell. 
But there will be a day when all will acknowledge that He is Lord and will give Him the honor He deserves. Even condemned sinners who will remain condemned for rejecting God and Christ in this life. God will be glorified. Christ will be honored by both His people and the rebellious. That's the truth here. But the question I want to end this morning off with is this. Will you honor Christ the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior today before it's too late? You need to honor Him in this life with your whole heart now before the end. Christ the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, took on flesh. He lowered Himself from glory and humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross. He died a sinner's death to take your sin to redeem you and to give you life. He rose again to conquer sin and death. Yet if you are not a believer this morning, then you need to respond in faith. This Christmas, if you haven't given your life to Christ, then that's what this Christmas ought to be about for you. Christ offers you life, but you must receive it in faith. Won't you come to Christ today, this Christmas season? This Christmas season. Luke 2.11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord was born for you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. And our hearts are filled with joy because Christ indeed was born for us. Christ came as a lowly baby. He took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself and died a sinner's death on the cross. Yet thanks to his death and his resurrection, we can have life in him. And God, this Christmas, I pray that our eyes and our hearts will be so fixed and so focused on Jesus Christ who died for us, who came as a lowly baby. Cause us to not care about the things of this world or to not be so obsessed with our temporary earth and possessions. Help us to consider consider the eternal Christ who gave his life for us. And help us to respond in faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.